Hello, you're listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. As always, we have an exciting show for you this month. I will be taking a dive into planetary atmospheres to look at their chemistry. Andrew will reveal the latest insights from the astrobiology community, and Hugh takes on the most recent exoplanet news. But first, let's meet our exocasters. My name is Hannah Wakeford, and I study the clouds and atmospheres of exoplanets through observations with the Hubble Space Telescope. I'm Hugh Osborne, and I hunt for transiting exoplanets, and I'm now in the Laboratoire d'Astrophysique de Marseille. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, which is obviously in France. Uh, and my name is Andrew Rushby. Um, I'm still at NASA Ames in California, uh, where I study planetary habitability and the early climate of the Earth. So first off, we're going to head back to Hannah, who's going to take us back to basics and introduce the composition and chemistry of exoplanet atmospheres. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, I'm going to talk about exoplanet chemistry, but I'm really only going to scratch the surface on what we know and understand about planets, their atmospheres and their compositions. We've seen from amazing images sent back from missions such as Cassini, Juno, uh, Venus Express, the latest Japanese mission, which is Akatsuki, that planetary atmospheres in our solar system are incredibly complex places. And each new piece of data is revolutionizing our thinking of dynamics and radiation. So pessimistically, why should we speculate about exoplanet atmospheres if we can't go there and get this same level of information? Uh, This in my mind really stems from two main philosophies of exploration. One is that taking a single example and really trying to understand it in the deepest way possible, tracking its history, present and predicting its future of one object as a token for all other objects. Um, And this type of study will give you information on detailed and specific instances. But there's a second philosophy, taking a whole series of objects, places, environments, and looking at them in a collective sense to try and derive global histories, present conditions, and predict future scenarios. And to some extent, our own solar system really lies in that first category, whereas exoplanets lie in that second one. But to really kickstart our understanding, we have to use the familiar, the things closest to us. And the same holds true for this chemistry question. So looking at our solar system, there are four broad sweeping generalizations for different planetary atmospheric environments. Two of these occupy the terrestrial rocky regime with either Earth, Venus or Titan-like atmospheres, which are thick and derived from rock-making materials and outgassing. And those like Pluto and the dwarf planets, which have atmospheres derived from ices with tenuous uh, and very thin atmospheres around them. Now the other two are from gas giant planets, and there are two categories of these. There is the gas poor gas giants, like Neptune and Uranus, where their mass only uh, affords them the accretion of around 10 to 40% of their total mass in hydrogen and helium. And then the gas rich gas giants, which are like Jupiter and Saturn, where greater than 50% of their mass is made up of this hydrogen and helium. But what we're slowly discovering with exoplanets is that this leaves a very big hole. And what the Kepler mission has shown us is that, in fact, 
planets with masses between Neptune and the Earth, or these mini-Neptunes, have no counterparts in our solar system. And there's a huge suite of atmospheric compositions that lie between less than 50% hydrogen and helium and Earth's 80 to 20 ratio of nitrogen to oxygen. So really trying to understand these planets' atmospheres and chemistry gives us a whole other category that we need to be looking at. So exoplanet chemistry and planetary chemistry, to some extent in our own solar system as well, is a very, very difficult thing to do and understand. Now, exoplanetary characterization efforts aim to directly probe this chemistry and the physical processes which govern it through spectroscopic analysis. Their governing processes are based on both the incoming stellar irradiation and the planet itself. Outside of our own solar system, we have to start to consider the impact that different stars will have on the planetary atmosphere and its chemistry based on the planet's orbital distance and the spectroscopic output of the star itself. So different stars for different temperatures and sizes will have a different spectroscopic profile, which will impact that planet's atmosphere, which in turn has influences on the chemistry. But the planets themselves play the biggest role in governing their own chemistry. In particular, the strength of a planet's gravity and the temperature profile will play a huge role in the radiative and dynamical processes which impact the global chemistry, including the formation of clouds, as we've talked about extensively on this podcast. Now, given the nature of observing techniques, the investigation of planetary chemistry beyond our solar system has been limited to these gas-rich gas giants, these Jupiter and Saturn analogues, but that orbit close, so close to their star that it changes the temperature profile that we're talking about. So we're talking about very similar gravities where you've got somewhere between the Earth's gravity, maybe a little bit less, and Jupiter's gravity where in fact Jupiter's gravity, which is around 15 to 20 meters per second squared, is one of the most common gravities that's been measured for exoplanets thus far. So we have a small range in gravities, but we have a huge range in temperatures. And these hot planets orbit very close to their star, have a very different temperature profile than what we see with our own solar system. So can we actually question whether or not they occupy a very different region of this parameter space? And we have then not just five, but six different types of planets to look at in terms of their chemistry. What's been mostly considered uh, up to this point for these giant planets that we've been able to observe is that there is an assumption they are under equilibrium conditions, so under chemical equilibrium. And this really actually only holds true in the high temperature regime. So anything above 1400 Kelvin, which is, which is 1100 Celsius or 2000 Fahrenheit, for those who need equally impossible units to understand what we're discussing when we talk about big numbers. All three of those numbers are completely useless in the human scale of things. It's very, very hot. Uh, that's, part, that's equivalent to the temperature of a rocket as it's taking off. So incredibly hot atmospheres of these planets that we're talking about. So under that, we would expect them to be in chemical equilibrium. So that rules out what's happening in our solar system, planetary atmospheres, where they're not in chemical equilibrium. In fact, lots of clouds and hazes and photochemical processes are impacting the planetary atmospheres of Jupiter and Saturn. And we can see that both spectroscopically from telescopes on the ground and in space, and also from the missions that have been sent there to really study their atmospheres. 
So anything below this 1400K mark, we start to try and understand how these photochemical processes or disequilibrium processes start to impact that atmosphere and the balance of the gases that we would see there. In the high temperature regime, we expect them to be very much like brown dwarfs or even stars in, to some extent, where at a high enough temperature, you're disassociating all of your molecules. So you only have your atomic elements in that atmosphere. And then you should be starting to form water molecules. Water is one of the easiest molecules to form in the entire universe. And it is one of the most abundant because of that. It's a very stable molecule. So mixed in with this hydrogen and helium for these hot, gas-rich gas giants, we would expect water vapor to be mixed within that. And that's actually what we're looking for mostly with the Hubble Space Telescope, is this signature of the water vapor mixed in with the hydrogen and helium. But as we get colder, you hit something uh, where you've got a chemistry boundary for the carbon species. At around 1000 to 1200 Kelvin, there's a boundary where you have equal amounts of carbon monoxide and equal amounts of methane. Above this temperature, carbon monoxide will dominate the carbon-based gas species. Below this temperature, methane will dominate the carbon-based gas species. And it's around this temperature regime where we think that photochemistry and disequilibrium processes will start to have a greater impact on a planetary atmosphere. This, of course, doesn't really impact the water at all. So we should still be seeing water throughout these atmospheres. What it really impacts is this chemistry of the carbon species. And the carbon to oxygen ratio is important because it helps us understand where in a planetary disk that planet formed. So what James Webb Space Telescope, which launches in October of 2018, is going to be able to do is it's going to look at these carbon species. They have absorption signatures in the infrared around three microns. And carbon and carbon dioxide and methane are really important to understand the balances of these equilibrium chemistry in a planetary atmosphere. These smaller or colder planets are really going to crack our understanding of planets in a global scale compared to our solar system. So not only as we move into the future with longer wavelengths to explore, get an understanding of this carbon-based species and how those change across temperature, we can also move to smaller planets because James Webb has a larger aperture than the Hubble Space Telescope. We can actually look at smaller planets around uh, relatively larger stars. And this is going to allow us to fill in that diagram with gravity and temperature as your main components. A smaller planet, lower gravity. This is going to be really, really important for our understanding of those two main dynamical impactors on any chemical regime that you'd have in your planetary atmosphere. Now, this isn't the end of that. There's a lot more chemistry, which is really, really complicated surrounding the oxygen-based species, which is dominated by water, and the carbon-based species, which is dominated by carbon monoxide or methane, where in colder planets, you should see large amounts of methane in the planetary atmosphere. On top of that, you'll have these clouds or these photochemically generated hazes, which I've covered in previous podcasts uh, in detail, that really impact the overall chemistry that you can measure in a planetary atmosphere. 
And what I've really touched upon in this very brief interlude into to planetary chemistry and, and where exoplanets really fit in with our solar system in terms of giving us this global look at different parameters and how we can explore many different regimes outside of our solar system, which is very much uh, secluded in where it sits in a lot of phase space. And what we're going to be able to do is develop theoretical models from our solar system, really picking out these really tiny details that we're seeing from Juno, that we've seen from Cassini, uh, and as we're going to learn more as Cassini takes its last plunge later this year, and trying to make sure that those models match up with the physics that we can see in our own solar system, so that when we're looking at these small and global parameters from exoplanets, we can put our own solar system into that context as well because it's a very difficult thing to do looking at the chemistry of these planetary atmospheres. So in the future, we're definitely gonna learn more. Uh, we're going to understand a bit more about the formation of these planets based on the carbon to oxygen ratios in their atmospheres. We're gonna be able to measure the carbon species along with the water absorption, and we're gonna be able to push down to smaller planets so that this chemical regime is cracked open and we can actually compare more to these chemical models that are in place right now and people are, are currently developing, which uh, really give us that information. Vice versa, is theory correct? Is observations correct? Is, does observations match the, match the predicted theory? That's interesting, Hannah, thanks. Um, I was wondering how much um, practical chemistry, you know, lab-based stuff on Earth can can help us with our understanding of exoplanets because I can imagine if you get a a vial of what we think is in a hot Jupiter and get it up to to temperature and pressure would it, would we find something new is that done? That is a fantastic question and yes that is being done. There is a couple of labs. There's one here um, at Johns Hopkins University run by Sarah Horst who is just basically taking mixtures of gases and putting them at different temperatures and pressures and seeing what forms, seeing what materials and interaction and chemical timescales. So one of the things that I didn't say is that it's the chemical pathways and the chemical timescales are vitally important information that we have very little of. This is not just a problem in exoplanets, this is a problem in our solar system models as well. The modeling for Mars, for example, we don't know every single chemical pathway that should be expected between species. And the timescales related to those are essentially extrapolated from other chemical reactions which we think act in the same way. So there's a lot that we don't understand. Um, and Olivia Vinot uh, also tried to do some studies on this and she worked with the combustion industry. And working with the combustion industry, which is, you know, cars and, and the manufacturing of that to see what gases mix, that allowed that team to get the right temperatures that we see in these hot Jupiter atmospheres and measure the chemical pathways that are expected there for the main species. So there's lots of groups where we're picking apart and trying to pull together these, these lab-based data. And the, the UCL group, um, ExoMole, is doing this for diatomic species, so looking at uh, vanadium oxides, titanium oxides, getting all of the you know individual line by line measurements of the spectroscopic rotational, vibrational and quantum modes of each of these molecules. So lab based work is incredibly important as a basis and input for any model that we use. Excellent. That was great, Hannah. 
Now, Andrew is going to cover some of the recent updates from astrobiology, the field of study that aims to figure out if there's life on any of the exoplanets we've discovered, or some of the worlds closer to home. Yes, uh, last month saw researchers from all over the world gathering in Mesa, Arizona, which is pretty cl pretty close to me, just a short short plane journey into the desert, uh, for the Biennial Astrobiology Science Conference, or colloquially ABSICON. Um, and personally, I've got a bit of a soft spot for this conference, if you can have such a thing. Um, it was my first international meeting way back in 2012. Uh, the company is great, the snacks are free and generally available all day, and the coffee is usually all right as well. Also, importantly, it's my uh, home turf, so to speak. Um, after you know, spending many years attending many, many astronomy meetings and cowering in the back under a veil of my own ignorance about complex concepts that are just thrown out offhandedly as if common knowledge, I always feel like I would be a little bit more comfortable among my fellow alien chasers. That is until I attend the first session and realise that I still really don't know very much, um, because it's a broad term and it covers a lot more subject matter than most people are able to be comfortable with, I guess, uh, and me definitely included. So I just wanted to um, pick out some highlights um, that I found personally and also that I, I, I saw across the web and people um, people talking about and, and garnering some interest. Um, so some of the topics that were whetting our astrobiological appetites at this meeting uh, included uh, big telescopes, like really, really big telescopes. So uh, we had John Grunsfeld there, uh, who's uh, an astronaut, former NASA chief scientist and a generally all-round cool mustachioed dude. Um, and he suggested that astronauts will be building 16-meter telescopes on orbit in the 2030s to revolutionize our search for biosignatures. So these are the indicators that life might put into the atmosphere as gases. So to put this in context, James Webb, um, which, as Hannah said, launches next year, is an absolute beast. And its mirror is about 6.5 meters. Um, furthermore, if you get the chance to visit the um, Smithsonian Air and Space Museum in Washington, and I, I really suggest that you do, it's great, um, you can ogle at the enormity of the scale model of Hubble, which is there, uh, and then remember that its mirror is 2.4 meters. So building a space behemoth with a mirror of 60 meters or bigger would involve blasting the pieces up there individually and then assembling them on orbit, which I think is really, really cool. Um, and to quote the man himself, to stay at the forefront of science and engineering, we need to be bold. And this is certainly a very bold strategy that would have an enormous return, but it's some way out just yet. So another topic that was well covered by sessions and plenaries was planetary protection. This is a, a, a cool sounding term for the protocols that are put in place to ensure that errant Earth organisms stowing away on spacecraft don't contaminate the surfaces of other worlds. And you might be thinking that not many organisms could really survive the harshness of space for that long. For example, the duration of a trip to Mars or to the outer planets. And you, you'd be right in some sense, but only an incredibly small fraction of a bacterial population, for example, actually need to survive for the risk of contamination at arrival to be very real. Um, and we know this from research on the ISS and in labs across the world that have shown that bacterial spaceship stowaways could survive as spores for around 10 million years while enduring enormous heat and radiation and then can quickly return from dormancy when conditions are right, like perhaps in the warm, soupy oceans of Europa or Enceladus. And I think the last thing we'd want if we were exploring these under ice seas is to find life that originally came from Earth. That would be a real bummer. Um, the problem 
that was explored actually very entertainingly during an interactive plenary session uh, is that the risk of these sneaky spores surviving um, even the most rigorous of cleaning regimens can never really be eliminated because everywhere on earth is absolutely lousy with life. It's, it's everywhere. Uh, even the cleanest clean rooms aren't absolutely sterile, which means that we have to accept that our spacecraft are going to be a bit gross. Uh, and we just have to agree on acceptable and realistic limits of exposure. And what those limits should be remains an open area of debate and it needs to balance, obviously, practicality and cost um, and also risk to extraterrestrial environments from terrestrial germs. So it's very much an open topic, um, but one that I think we really, um, really do need to address. Uh, NASA does have a, an Office for Planetary Protection, which might be one of the coolest sounding office names that I know about. Um, and the head of the Astrobiology um, Institute was a former director there. So I think, you know, this will continue to be well studied. Another hot button topic were origin of life studies. Um, now, this is a really fast moving field, quite a controversial one as well. And many of the talks that I attended on the matter represented that. I was, I was woefully out of my depth pretty soon, um, but from what I could ascertain, the old ideas that focused too much on just looking at one possible, for example, chemical reaction and its you know, maximum end result are kind of being thrown out the window uh, a little bit, because this is obviously a bit of a simplification. Life doesn't play by those rules, you know, it isn't a single, a single chemical reaction which means that now researchers are looking at the whole complex system, um, a system's science of messy chemistry, which is bound up in tar and made of amino acids and nucleotides and prions and RNA and even radioactive particles from distant galaxies. So in short, it's a bit of a mess, but then again, so is life. So we might as well get our microscopes a bit dirty. So those are some of the highlights, uh, but there were plenty of other fascinating talks on exoplanet detection and characterization, some um, really cool stuff on hydrothermal vents, geophysics, icy moons, and even religion, philosophy, and ethics. Um, and I'm already looking forward to 2019, um, when the next installment of AppsIcon will be in Seattle. So if you're interested in learning a bit more about astrobiology or watching some of the talks from the conference, you can head over to astrobiology.nasa.gov where they're available free to stream. That was fantastic. Uh, it's always fascinating to hear because astrobiology, it seems it's very much future kind of concepts that you have to deal with. What would you say is the most pressing thing that is present like right now? Pressing is an interesting word, Hannah, actually. There was a really interesting interview I read yesterday with Jack Shostak, uh, who's one of the SETI researchers, a Nobel laureate. And, um, he was talking about how exoplanet characterization and detection and astrobiology are really pushing each other forward um, in, many, in many respects. And I guess the most pressing one is, for me personally, um, and I would probably... I think I could gauge the gauge the pulse of the field. It's probably biosignature detection. Um, there's uh, a number of uh, National Academy reports coming out on this. There's, um, I know, five papers up on the archive based on a, a meeting last year looking at this and trying to work in unison with the exoplanet and astro, uh, astrophysical community to try and combine our efforts here to understand enough about biology to inform telescope design um, and to make sense of some of the data that comes out of it. So I think the future, future directions for exoplanet 
astrobiology, I think, is definitely getting... Well, by necessity, has to be biosignatures. It's unlikely we'll be able to visit them. But there's a lot of stuff going on here on Earth, actually. Um, that's that's one of the, the benefits that astrobiology has, is that there are actually quite a few cool analogues here on this planet that we can, we can use to understand a little bit more about our neighbours. For example, the Atacama is a pretty good analogue for certain areas of Mars. Um, we have some some Arctic research stations that, that might go some way to understanding um, some of the, the poles of, of Mars or even some icy moons. So there's um, a lot of cool field work that's being done, which isn't something we discuss very often here on Exocast, but might be something for a future episode. Great. Well, that leads us very nicely into the next section of Exocast. And Hugh is going to take us through the Exoplanet news from our international news desk in France. That's right, I am. Um, we've got a few new hot Jupiters for you this week. Uh, one old planet, or you know, removed planet, I should say. Um, some atmospheric studies, some theoretical studies, and also uh, some interesting news from NASA. So I'll start on the hot Jupiter side of things uh, with KELT. So KELT is the kilogree, t- kilo degree extremely little telescope. And uh, um, if, if you know much about these sort of transit surveys, then you'll know that the smaller the telescope is, the brighter the stars it looks at is. Um, so this um, this new hot Jupiter that they found is actually the brightest transiting planet host in the southern hemisphere. So it's it's only a VMAG of or, or a magnitude of eight. So uh, and that's that's something we, we really look for in in transiting planet science because the brighter stars give us more photons to play with for follow up. Um, and it's it's kind of a bog standard hot Jupiter to be honest. So a little over one Jupiter radii in radius and uh, pretty low mass with only about 0.19 Jupiter masses. Um, so lots of potential transmission spectroscopy to be done there that I'm sure Hannah is noting down. Um, and sticking with KELT, the uh, very interesting KELT 9b was released this month. So that um, so most most hot Jupiters, most planets we know, orbit stars either like the Sun or slightly cooler, so around something like an M-dwarf. And this star, this planet, I should say, orbits a 10,000 Kelvin star. So this is on the border between B and A type, uh, which in astronomy language is the opposite way because it goes from B to A to F to G to K. It doesn't make much sense. Um, but So it's 2,500 Kelvin hotter than the previous um, planet host, hottest planet host. And in fact, it's, it's so close on a 1.5 day orbit that the hot side, the, the star-facing side of, of this planet, is likely to be 4,000 Kelvin. So um, this is hotter than even early K, K stars. So way hotter than, than TRAPPIST-1, way hotter than Proxima, hotter than a lot of stars. So this is quite impressive. And that means that material is almost certainly being blasted off the surface of this, this planet. Um, although, quite interestingly, the star is going to grow on, on universal scales anyway, relatively rapidly and only uh, take 200, 200 million years to become a subgiant and evolve onto this giant stage. Um, so whether KELT 9b will be blasted away or whether it will be engulfed, we don't really know which will happen first yet. But certainly it's, it's not going to last too long in the, in the cosmic scheme of things. Another interesting hot Jupiter discovered, again on a, a large planet on a short orbit around a, a star, was TAP-23b. Well, TAP 26b, I should say. And the interesting thing about this hot Jupiter is that it orbits an extremely young star. 
So the star is only 17 mil million years old, and it's actually a, a so-called T-Tauri star, and these are very young stars that still have the disk in which planets are forming. Um, and it's found by Louise Yu um, with radial velocities taken from the CHFT telescope in Hawaii. I've just done the thing where you, you, you say the T even though it stands for telescope, never mind. Um, so this, this kind of shows that hot Jupiters form and migrate much more rapidly than maybe we previously thought. And it also suggests that hot Jupiters might even be more common around these disc-hosting T-Tauri stars than older main-sequence stars like our Sun. Um, sticking with young stars, but moving away from hot Jupiters, uh, we go to HD 131399AB, uh, which Wikipedia tells me is nicknamed Scorpion, which... I, I mean, it sounds better, but I didn't know we were doing that. Um, so this was a young planet in a three-star system So, with um, that was discovered by direct imaging with Sphere, with the, which is on the VLT in Chile. But in a paper by Eric Nielsen this month, uh, new data suggests that this planet is moving way too fast than we would expect, and in a straight line as well. So there's no seems to be no orbital curvature at all. And... It turns out that the reason is that it's not part of the system at all. It's instead a faint background star with an extremely high velocity that kind of fooled us into thinking that it was moving around its its sun, when actually it's just moving past this star as we look at it. So that's that's one less planet on the on the uh, on our roster of, of exoplanets, unfortunately. And from detections, we move to characterization and to HAT26b, so uh, this is a Neptune mass planet, about 1 20th the mass of Jupiter, but with a hefty radius, so over half the, the, the a Jupiter radius. And that's low density means that the atmosphere is extremely fluffy, so um, I think that's the technical term, Hannah, and Hannah was, was of course the, the person who, who performed this analysis using the Hubble Space Telescope's WFC3 camera uh, on four different transits, and obtained a pretty impressive spectrum of the planet in the IR uh, with with a clear water feature there um, so so yeah so what, what does this show what, what what did you find Hannah if so by measuring the water feature we're able to determine the abundance of of the amount of water that we expect in that planetary atmosphere globally so as I said before in the podcast uh, water is expected to be mixed throughout these hot planetary atmospheres and what we're measuring from the water abundance is a proxy for the amount of oxygen in that planet's atmosphere. And if we assume equilibrium conditions, then the oxygen abundance should be scaled with the overall metallicity of the atmosphere. And unfortunately, astronomers are striking again in their horrible definitions of things. Anything heavier than hydrogen and helium is a metal. Just to screw everybody over. So... The overall metallicity of an atmosphere is defined by how many heavy elements it has that are not hydrogen and helium. And from our own solar system, again, taking it back, we see that as you decrease the mass of your planet, you increase the amount of heavy elements in its atmosphere. So Uranus and Neptune have a lot more heavy elements in their atmosphere compared to Jupiter. It's in fact a 4 to 100 ratio. So Jupiter uh, has only four times the amount of the sun. So we use the sun as a calibrator here. And Neptune has 100 times. So that's what we expected. And that really tells us about where that planet formed in its disk. 
because if you form further out in a disk, you're expected to accumulate lots of icy material where it's essentially formed uh, rocky ices and planetesimals whilst the planets are forming. So if you can accumulate all of these heavy elements, your atmosphere should be more enriched. So for this Neptune mass planet, uh, HAPI 26b, we were expecting it to have a, a lot of these heavy elements. But what we found from measuring the water abundance, the amount of water in the atmosphere, is that it's more like Jupiter. It's actually around uh, four to five times the amount of the sun. And that tells us that it, it's got a primordial atmosphere, which is mostly composed of hydrogen and helium, with very little contamination from these planetesimals. So it's either very young, uh, and accumulated its gas late in the disk's lifetime, where there wasn't many of these heavy elements around, or it um, formed much closer to the star, like where Jupiter formed, so that it didn't have all of these ices that had that had frozen out in the disk, essentially, to accumulate. So the other option is both. It could have formed late in the disk's lifetime and close to the star. So we learned a little bit about the formation of this planet's atmosphere by being able to get a precise measurement of the water in the atmosphere. And that's really the key. We have detections of water in a lot of exoplanet atmospheres, but they're not precise enough to give us this measurement of the, the abundance, the amount of water there is. So what we got from HAT26 is just this really nice precise measurement, which allows us to make that, that conclusion. Excellent, cheers. So yeah, moving on to, well, the TRAPPIST-1 or the system we've talked a lot about on, on uh, Exocast so far. So one of the many reasons that M-dwarfs might not be habitable is, uh, is mostly because the habitable zone around an M-dwarf is far closer to the star than for hotter stars. Uh, and, and so this unleashes worse like high-energy photons from flares from the, from the M-dwarf, for example, and it also means that tidal locking is a problem. So these, these planets are in the TRAPPIST-1 system we would expect to be tidally locked to their star and therefore um, only have a, one side with a permanent daylight and one side with permanent darkness. But in a recent, uh, recent paper by Alec Vinson and collaborators, they, they suggest that in multi-planet systems like TRAPPIST-1, the gravitational pulls of other planets in the system can actually pull these planets away from tidal locking, enabling that full planetary surface to be bathed in sunlight. Um, however, these sort of the days on these 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 planets with this this effect would still be kind of problematic for life, uh, likely lasting years or decades at a time. But they would certainly help compared to permanent darkness, definitely. And finally. Uh, the news you've all, all been waiting for, NASA have announced a space mission to our nearest star, which is, of course, the Sun. Um, called Parker Solar Probe and launching in early or in, in summer 2018, this spacecraft's going to approach to about um, 8.5 solar radii, so about, uh, what's that, 0.2 AU? And, uh, which, which, at which point it will receive about 500 times more flux more uh, sunlight than at Earth, so so it's going to need to be built to withstand this sort of intense heat from that distance, uh, and it's going to study the corona, magnetic field, and the surface of our parent star, all of which might have direct links to stellar science and therefore extrasolar science by studying the effects that stars can have on planets as well as the effects that stars can have on our ability to find planets in the first place. So yeah, that's that's this month's Exocast news desk. 
That was great. I was just wondering, um, for the rotation of the planets in the Trappist-1 system, would, wouldn't a permanent day side and night side be a more stable system than introducing some kind of chaotic rotation on such time scales? I, I don't know. I think that comes down to the astrobiology questions as well. Um, is whether or not that would actually induce a more chaotic environment for things to evolve. Yeah, it's an interesting question, actually, because a lot of those tidal locking studies do identify a potential kind of habitable zone within the habitable zone, i.e. on the planet at the kind of the Terminator bit where things aren't quite as hot as being, you know, under the substellar point or not as cold uh, as being in the in the night side. So actually introducing this incredibly slow rotation on a timescale that's not really often considered in astrobiology is an interesting question um, and to be honest I'm, I'm not sure I think I'd agree with you in that it would actually introduce some uncertainty uh, and, and chaos to it and I think the atmospheric dynamics would be would be quite interesting as well um, rot- rotating on that on that time scale uh, it's, a, it's a cool idea though yeah certainly I, I wonder if it might help actually because if, if from what I know about tidal locking is you, you, bu- you build up stuff on the night side and you lose it on the day side. But if you're constantly moving, even at a slow rate, you're going to build up less ices because they'll eventually be melted as they move around or something, or, or that sort of thing. So you might maintain the atmosphere. But. Yeah, the, the problem is you your radiative and your advective timescales will then have to, for that to be the case, you would have to match the rotation. And I'm not sure that they would. No. Um, because... In a tidal locking situation, if your radiative um, timescale is equal to your advective timescale, the whole planet's an equal temperature. So all of that heat is being both radiated away at the same rate at which it's going around the planet. So that would allow you to have a global temperature. So what we measure and what we you know consider in models is the differences between the ratio of those timescales. And if you've got a rotation added into that, that's an additional parameter which has to offset those that balance between those two. And I, I really not sure. I think there might be a very nice sweet spot where you could create this this beautiful global habitable planet. But I, I honestly think that that's a that's a tough one to really one to measure at all. Uh, and and two <laughs> and two to just generally from the theoretical standpoint actually calculate. I think it's about the confluence of those timescales, not just the advective and the convective, but the biological as well. I mean, if there was life on those planets, they would have to adopt to a very different seasonal and intraseasonal dynamic, I guess, that would be somehow matched to that. It would be an incredibly interesting evolutionary environment as well, I think. On the plus side, the planets are so close together, they could just hop to another one for vacation. Take like a thousand years. No time at all. (laughs) So, Andrew, I see you're, you're adopting something extremely familiar to most, most people working in exoplanets. Do you want to tell us what planet you're, you're going for? Yes, I'm going to adopt uh, this month HD 189733b. And I was surprised to find that this fascinating planet hasn't already been invited to the Exocast party. Once I started reading up about it, I had to check our previous adopted planets to make sure it wasn't there. Um, and it's not. So I think it's interesting for a couple of reasons, not least that it's probably already very quite close to the 
the hearts of my co-hosts, given that they either now belong to institutions that actually made the discovery, uh, Lamb in Hugh's case, or have helped in the past to characterize its atmosphere, as Hannah herself has done by conducting primary research into this well-studied planet. And she determined what spectral features can be observed from its atmosphere and at what wavelength. Um, so this planet, it's a, it's a little bit bigger than Jupiter, and it's also the closest hot Jupiter-class world to the Earth, uh, only 63 light-years away. And I think this goes some way to explaining um, why it features in over 450 published scientific papers. Uh, it was the first exoplanet to have its weather measured, and by that I mean that a thermal map of the planet was made by Spitzer uh, to figure out how heat was transported around. Um, and this also helped to confirm some theoretical predictions made earlier by models. Um, so not only is it really hot, uh, around 1000 Kelvin, um, and uniformly so, both vertically and latitudinally, uh, it's also incredibly windy. Um, data nightside winds of about 8,700 kilometers an hour were measured with harps, which goes again some way to explain how the temperatures remain scorching even on the tidally locked night side of this planet. So not only would wind of that speed and at that temperature destroy everything you hold dear, you can also expect hypersonic rain comprised of glass. So there's that. This is a pretty badass world, not for the faint-hearted. Um, it's also a planet of firsts, though, um, a pioneer, if you will, in a pioneering field, as it was the first world to have its color determined. Um, and it returned evidence for a kind of a deep blue hue kind of like a shadowy Neptune made out of heat and glass and anger. Um, it was also the first um, planet to have its spectra measured in the X-ray and to have carbon dioxide detected in its atmosphere, and Hannah spoke earlier about why that's important. Um, so this planet is like a giant astronomical guinea pig on which instrumentation and models are tested, and the surprises that this enormous guinea pig have returned are pretty amazing. I should say at this juncture that Exocast does not condone the testing of instrumentation on actual guinea pigs. Um, now, astute listeners may have noticed that my previous additions to our Adopt-A-Planet program have been roughly Earth-sized worlds with some habitability angle, um, but as HD189733B has warmed my heart to a toasty 800 degrees Celsius and blasted me in the face with an ultrasonic wind of firsts and advances in our understanding of how these enigmatic worlds behave, I couldn't help but feel that we have to have this world in our exocast entourage. What a fantastic choice. It was. How has no one adopted it yet? Yeah, I don't know. Probably feeling really left out. Cases. It's just so it's like the most popular kid in class. You don't, you don't want to. You don't want to pick them first, right? Yeah. So we pick I mean, them fourteenth instead. Its ego might get overinflated, like its radius. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> At least we're ending this episode on a strong, a strong point. Yeah. <laughs> So thank you for joining us for this really fun exocast. We have another installment coming up at the end of this month. Hugh will talk about the upcoming transiting exoplanet survey satellite, or TESS. Andrew will talk a bit more about biosignatures. And I will report on the month's exoplanetary news. So thank you for listening. And if you want to hear more, then you can check out all of our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter, at exo underscore cast, and like us on Facebook. So until next time. See you next month. Bye. Exocast.